There have been many throughout the history of the church who have speculated in many ways, sometimes radical, sometimes not so radical, about when Jesus will return. One of those such famous examples of the kind of radical speculations that maybe you've heard before are the Millerites. Uh, The Millerites were followers of a man named William Miller. Miller was a 19th century Baptist pastor who was fascinated with end times passages and who used Daniel 8 and 9 to calculate what he believed would be the date in which Jesus would return. A date in which he marked on his calendar October 22nd, 1844. Well, either Miller was right and we are wrong, or perhaps more likely, Miller was wrong. What became known as the great disappointment by his followers that who listened to his teaching and would ultimately sell their homes and wait anxiously for that date to arrive were met with a great disappointment. These kinds of events are not abnormal to us. We laugh at them. We we kind of make fun of them. They're a big joke. Uh, For example, Harold Camping's many predictions that I know you have heard, maybe even his recent uh, call, prediction, even his billboard campaigns were that Christ would return on May 21st, 2011, and the many before that. Well, friends, I know that as we consider prophecy, particularly in times passages, there are the ones in the room that get really excited, the ones that bring out their charts and all of their maps, and they begin to get really kind of boiled up inside as they think about these passages, as they seek to unlock the secret codes of the Bible. And then there's those that just read it and are scared. Like, freaked out. Like, I don't know what to make of these things. Uh, And they kind of just go away discouraged and and upset and not really knowing what to do. Friends, I know that. And I also want you to know that that a sermon is not the place to unpack every theological debate that's ever existed on these passages. And so, over the next three weeks, we're going to be thinking about Mark Mark chapter 13. That famous... Olivet Discourse of Jesus, where he begins to foretell the future about the second coming and the the great tribulation and the abomination of desolation and the the destruction of the temple and and the the stars falling and the sun and moon changing. Passages I'm sure are familiar to some here today. And here's the truth. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to disappoint you because I'm not going to get muddled down in the details. I'm not going to bring out charts and maps and all the such things. And I'm going to try as best as I can to stay away from terminology that is exclusive to the kind of systems that we in the last 200 years have heard. But rather, just take Jesus' words to his original hearers, to their original readers, and then kind of consider what kind of application is there for our lives together as God's people. We can debate whether or not you are a pre-trib premillennialist or a post-trib premillennialist or you uh, fall into some other camp like an amillennialist or, or such. 
And if you're here this morning and you don't know what those are, well, you are the most blessed among us. So with that, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We're going to take this, as I know that it is often serious. I, I was going to preach this sermon, in, or this passage, the entire chapter in one sermon. But I didn't feel that would do justice to you. I thought that it might confuse you more than inform you. Uh, and then originally, then after that, I thought well, we'll do it in two sermons. And then I felt even that was insufficient. So I'm going to divide it into three sermons. Um, it could have easily been organized in one and left a lot of questions. My hope is to not have as many questions as I have answers. But also submitting that for 2,000 years the church has been confused and not had a consistent. And what I mean by consistent is that everyone has believed it. For example, for 2,000 years the church has been consistent that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That the gospel is by faith alone in Christ alone. Those have been consistent. Some of those other things about the end has not been consistent. And so I don't want to be dogmatic and orthodox where the church has not been historically. Just a helpful sort of reminder. Well, let's get to it. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There, well, these are but the beginning of the birth be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver over brother to death. And the father his children. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures will, to the end, will be saved. As we think about this passage, as we think about biblical prophecy, as we think about in time theology, uh, the fancy word is eschatology. It, as we think about these things, I think this little statement from Alistair Begg is so helpful in this passage. 
In fact, I just want to exhort you, if you want to have a better sermon on this, Google Alistair Begg, Mark 13. You'll find a series of sermons on it, which will be way better than what you're going to hear today. Um, but Begg says this, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So let's say that again. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And what Begg means is, is that Often as Christians, we are tempted to get into the, the, the sort of the mud, the muck. We, we, we spend and, and focus the detail on the not-so-plain things, and by result, we miss the main exhortation of the passage. When we sit and try to figure out all the little pieces and try to put it all together, we miss the main point that Jesus is, is really trying to teach his church. And that's really just a helpful tool when you read the Bible. Always and forever, when you read God's word, know that God has communicated his word in such a way that everyone can understand it. You don't need a Ph.D. in Bible languages in order to read the Bible and know what it says. Praise God. The main things of the, are the plain things. So the plain things in this passage is what we're going to give our time to think about this morning. Again, as I've said, we're, we're, we're going to leave some of the difficult things for another day. But I want to sort of preface my thinking on this passage in another way also. There is a tension when we think about the end times or think about the time between Jesus came and the time when he'll return. And something that will help you when you are reading your Bible and when you're thinking about Mark 13 is to think about these passages in the tension that Jesus has given them to us. A, a tension of already, but not yet. That is, a, a, that already these things have been fulfilled, but not yet have some of them been fulfilled. That is, there is nothing... That is preventing Jesus from returning. There is no event in human history that is left undone that is preventing the Son of God from returning for his people. Okay? So regardless of where you might fall, what camp you might be in, that's what we read in our statement of faith. That's what we hold on to, that Jesus could come at any moment. And that we say, come quickly, come quickly. And so there's an already but not yet tension in this passage. Some of these things have already happened, but some of them lay into the future. Some of it will happen at the death of Christ. Some of them a few years after the death of Christ. Some of them won't happen until thousands of years later. We want to be careful that we do not overly interpret this passage. That we don't somehow take this passage and read in more than is here. And so my hope for you is to read this as if you were Andrew, Peter, James, and John. And then you were the church in Rome as Mark is sending this book to you. And then read it with those ears in our contemporary context. What is it saying? I think J.C. Ryle here is helpful. He says why he tells us why we should even care about this passage. 
why, why should we even give it our time to thinking about prophecy? It's so confusing. If it's so difficult, if people are so divided over it, why, why do we even give our time to think about it? We write, chapters like this ought to be deeply interesting to every true Christian. No history ought to receive so much of our attention as the past and future history of the Church of Christ. What he's saying is we should care about our future. The rise and fall of worldly empire are events of comparatively small importance in the sight of God. Babylon and Greece and Rome and France and England are as nothing in the eyes by the side of this mystical body of Christ. The march of armies and the victories of conquerors are more trifles in comparison with the progression of the gospel and the final triumph of the Prince of Peace. That is that God is advancing human history to his ends for his glory, but it's all about the bride of Christ. That human history is moving with the bride of Christ as its central focus. That God is gathering together his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for his glory to wait for the return of Christ. So what is the point of this passage? So I've summarized in this one statement. I hope it does us well. Jesus, this is sort of what this passage is teaching. Jesus, the new Israel, the fulfillment to which the temple pointed, declares the coming judgment of God in the destruction of the temple. He further then exhorts his disciples to endure to the end by preparing them to suffer for his namesake and the gospel. Jesus in this passage predicts the end of the temple. That is the closing of this dispensation and the opening to a new kingdom that he is ushering in, the kingdom of his name. And he is calling his disciples to endure the coming suffering that they will face for his name and the sake of the gospel. So we're going to think about this in two ways. First, we're going to consider the destruction of the temple. And then secondly, the, the non-signs that Jesus gives. The non-signs that Jesus gives. So first, let's look at what Jesus says about the destruction of the temple. Mark tells us that Jesus has been teaching in the temple. We've been considering several passages. Jesus has been sort of camped out in the temple the last few days, and he has been exhorting and teaching. Uh, he's been being confronted by the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the other religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And what we see here in Mark 13 is Jesus giving a declaration about the future of Israel, declaring what's going to happen to all of this all of this hustle and bustle that has been going on that his disciples have been seeing. And so we're told by Mark in chapter verse 1 of chapter 13 that as his disciples are leaving the temple with Jesus, they began to sort of admire the, the beautiful architecture of the temple. They began to kind of look around like, look how great, look what they say. They say, look teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Look how awesome this place is. This place is amazing, Jesus. Isn't this place really cool? I mean, look how beautiful it is. That's true. Herod's, Herod, Herod's temple was magnificent. It paled in comparison to the other structures around it. It was considered one of the greatest wonders of the Roman world. Hear what one Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote about it 
in its splendor. He said the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was soon up Then it's radiated so fiery a flash that persons strained to look and could bail to advert their eyes as from solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. They were as big as boxcars. Stones massively white and pure would have been seen for miles as as people came and journeying to Jerusalem. It was a wonder to behold. The disciples were in awe of it. And quite naturally, they were good Jews. They loved their faith. But Jesus says something striking, almost radical, almost unnerving. In verse 2, he says, look at all this. It's wonderful, isn't it? He says, look at these great buildings. Look at it. It's amazing. It's magnificent. Can't be moved. Not one of these stones will be left there. This whole place will be destroyed. Now, I want you to imagine what that would have sounded like to his disciples. What do you mean, Jesus? What army could undo this place. This place is massive. It is huge. These biggest boxcars these stones are. Who's going to come and move these stones? Who's going to do this? And as we know, it was true. In 70 AD, Titus, the emperor, took his troops and sieged Rome, excuse me, sieged Jerusalem. He destroyed The city, not one stone was left. Even today, the only piece that still exists is the Wailing Wall. The only structure that still remains from this great temple. It was never rebuilt. It was never thought to be rebuilt. And there is a reason why. Do you see it? Verse 1. And he came out of the temple. The language used here in these passages are most assuredly purposeful. Jesus did not sit on the Mount of Olives in verse 3 by accident. Jesus is declaring that God has left. Just as the eternal God descended on the triumphal day, he has now abandoned this temple. In Ezekiel 11, 22 through 25, Ezekiel tells us that this is the place where the Shekinah glory of the Lord left the temple. This is why when they constructed that temple, the builders of the temple knew that it paled in comparison with Solomon's great temple. Oh, on the outside, it looked really amazing. It looked beautiful. It was phenomenal. It was massive. But the problem was, is God wasn't there. He never came back. The Shekinah glory of the Lord departed 600 years earlier and never returned until that day Jesus walked into its gate. 
Jesus is prophesying here, there is no longer a need for a temple, for the true temple has arrived. This is why the curtain is torn in two at the death of Christ. Because there is no glory of God. We do not meet with God in a temple. We meet with God in the person of Jesus Christ. But it is also the place where the Lord will return. In Zechariah 14.4, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that half of the mountain shall be northward and the other half southward. When Jesus comes, he's coming there. And so all of this is meant to remind the reader and us today that Jesus is left the temple that God's left and that God is coming to judge the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is most assuredly the fulfillment of this passage God's judgment upon his people for rejecting his son so what does this text teach us about God well it teaches us that God is sovereign over human history Jesus is declaring what is going to happen. Jesus here is revealing something of himself, is he not? All things work according to the purpose of him. We can rest in God. That the events of this world are purposed by him. That there are not any event that happens. No no world tragedy, no destruction. It's as horrible. Time to think about it, but but that siege on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was horrendous. We're going to think more about it next week. Horrendous. The agony, the pain, the suffering that was faced by those in that city. God is in control. We can trust that He is in control. We can trust that His purposes are good. Our focus then must be on something else. It must be on the race that we are to run, not the crushing realities of living in a fallen world. You see, the disciples had a problem. They put their hope in structures and buildings and safe things. Jesus, are you sure about this? This place is massive. Who could have done this? Who could do these things? And so they ask, give us the details, Jesus. When's this going to happen? How is this be? How could this be? And so in verses four, in chapter uh, 13 and verses 3 and 4, they ask Jesus, what's going on? Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of all of these things? So what we want to do is kind of think about here. All right, Jesus is prophesying the temple will be destroyed. That the temple will one day be annihilated. That Jerusalem will be judged for their unfaithfulness to him. But there is hope, Jesus says. So I don't want you to kind of walk away from this passage and say, wow, this is like super depressing. And like, ah, no, this is hopeful. There is great expectation in these words of Jesus. Jesus is saying, look, there is a new day coming. The new Israel has come. I am the all of the passages that pointed to Israel, I am fulfilling. Not one dot or iota will be left undone. I will fulfill them all, Jesus says. I am the true temple that has come to usher in the kingdom of God. And so he prepares them for that. 
What Jesus is doing in this passage is making preparation for them and ultimately for us. What does it look like to live between the first and second advent of Christ? What does it look like? How, how do we live? What are we to do? What are we to give ourselves to do? What Jesus does then in this passage is lays out some warnings, both as indicators of the destruction of the temple and also non-indicators or non-signs. So there's signs that this will be the sign that the temple will be destroyed, that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And these are the signs that you shouldn't really pay much attention to. Don't allow them to distract you. And so what we're going to think about here in the remaining time that we have is sort of the non-signs of the end. That are, that, are, that are things that we should not use as indicators to say, oh, Jesus is coming. It could be at any moment. Jesus is saying, no, these are the kind of things that you will experience over the lifetime of the Christian church. These are the kind of things that as the church of Christ, you will be faced with. So what are they? There's four of them. Four sort of exhortations in this passage, four sort of commands that he gives. Now I want you to note something here. Let's just sort of walk through them, and then we'll go over them. So first, in verse 5, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. Then, in verse 7, verse 7, about halfway through that verse, he says, Do not be alarmed. Be an alarmist. Verse 9, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Verse, 10, verse 11, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And then there's that capstone phrase at the end. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So the question then is, Jesus, how does one endure to the end? Jesus, how, how can I prepare myself to endure tribulation? How can I prepare myself to endure trial? Now, I'm just, just going to kind of press into this word endure just for two seconds. Endurance implies difficulty. If you've ever tried to run, it's difficult if you've not done it in a long time. You need endurance to run the difficult task. Endurance implies difficulty. And Jesus' words themselves indicate such. We are not called to live a sort of easy life of luxury. Regardless of what the false teachers on TV tell you, your best life now is not now. It is not. I don't care how smiley their teeth are and white they are and pretty they look. They are lying to you. Jesus has called you to endure to the end. And so how do we do that? That's what we want to think about. First, a warning about false teachers in verse 5. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead you astray. Matthew makes it more explicit what Jesus means. He writes, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, 
and will lead many astray. So what, what Jesus is saying is, listen, when the destruction of the temple is about to happen, and throughout the church, there's going to be times where false Christs or anti-Christs are going to raise up in the, your midst and are going to lead people astray. They're going to cause people. And notice what he says in verse 6. He says, they will lead many astray. It's a danger here, isn't it? Isn't it a warning? The, 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 the sort of danger? Friends, 2,000 years of history has a, been sort of a witness to that kind of danger of, of Christians, Christians, I'm going to use sort of that, uh, people being led astray by false teachers. How many have been captivated by perhaps Mormonism and thinking that it's a Christian denomination? Oh, friends, it is not. It is a cult. It is confusing who Jesus is. Or Jehovah Witnesses who've, who've been duped into believing. Or even in the Catholic Church. How many have been deceived and led astray by even their teaching? Friends, we must be reminded that as Christians, we will face this kind of temptation. Part of the role of pastors and, and shepherds is to, to shepherd the flock to keep the wolves out. Why we take so carefully who we allow into our midst and who we allow to teach. We're careful with that because we don't want any false teachers claiming to be followers of Christ. But notice also what Jesus says later in this passage. If you just sort of scan down maybe to the next page in your Bible uh, in verse 20, uh, 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, and look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform many signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I've told you things beforehand. And so Jesus is, is saying, listen, it is possible for you to be led astray. But thanks be to God, not his elect. And so there is this warning here in your, not, your life and my life that we could be open to deception. As Paul exhorts his readers, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of things, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Or in James 5, what we considered on Wednesday night, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth. That same word, wonders, is, is led astray here. Same word, uh, wonders from the truth. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's this, this temptation that we face, and, and it kind of can scare us. We can be like, oh, my God. I remember years ago, my, my stepfather called me. Um, he was like, I'm really worried. What's going on? really worried I have the mark of the beast. And I'm like, what do you mean you have the mark of the beast? And he began to tell me these things, and, and I said, brother, and I use that word brother intentionally. What, what does God's word say about his elect? I'm pretty sure he just said that if possible, uh, the elect, that is, that it's impossible for the elect to be led astray. And so we're reminded in this passage that we must guard our hearts from the temptation. There are many temptations for God's people to be turned away from Christ. There are so many things that we can give ourselves to that can kind of turn our attention. 
akin. The, the sort of language of endurance implies that you're running a race, that you're sort of focused on something, and that as Christians, we can kind of turn our attention. The funniest thing to ever watch is someone who's running and looks down the ground, and they're going to fall, right? Well, friends, that's what happens to us. When we run without precise focus in Christ, we can easily be deceived by, by false truth when we do not have the truth central in our lives. This is why, and I repeat this often, this is why you must read the Bible for yourself and not be dependent on me or any other Bible teacher to tell you what the Bible says. Trent, if you are depending upon me, oh, you will be disappointed. This is why you must cultivate in your heart and life a robust understanding of God's word. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? This is why we do this on Wednesday nights. This is why we, I exhort you in our sermons to do this. Friends, we just have to develop sort of a Berean model of ministry. We test everything and we hold on to what's good. We're constantly testing. Look, you want, I guarantee you what will happen is in your life, if you become passive thinking, if you don't think uh, about what is coming into your life, you don't think about what you're listening to from the people around you, and you become dependent upon them rather than God, they will lead you astray. They will lead you astray. And so our authority must rest in Jesus. Second warning Jesus gives is don't be an alarmist. Don't be an alarmist. These are just the birth pains. Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Now, for some fascinating reason, and I haven't quite figured it out yet, all of most, if not all folks that I've ever heard talk about end time stuff, use that verse as an indicator of the end, when in fact Jesus says that's not an indicator of the end. (laughs) Those things will always be, he says, you will always hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be an alarmist. It just reminds us of what God prophesied through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6, 16. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. In the sense that the prophets, uh, the false prophets were running and saying, everything's good. Peace, everything's good. God's good with you. Y'all are, everything's perfect. All things are getting better. Not worse. They were deceived. And Jesus says, listen, all of these things are but the birth pains. These are things that will happen. Rumors of war. Friends, you can just turn on the TV every night. You're going to hear rumors of war. But he says, look, look what he says. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains or, or the beginning of great sorrow. You think about birth, you know, the, the, the sort of delivery process. You know, the, it, there's great pain, but there's great joy, isn't there? You ever think, consider that? There's great pain in, in childbearing, but also can be great joy. And so there is pain and joy in this eschatological way. The end brings great joy, but also great pain. 
there will be great pain and great joy. But we don't focus on these things, he says. Don't be an alarmist. Don't be alarmed by that. And friends, what is sad, particularly in our own day and age, is Christians running around like a bunch of chicken littles saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. I am floored by the number of Christians, Southern Baptists by name, that have been running around our country for the last year saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Friend, what do we believe? That God is in control or not? That God appoints kings or he doesn't? That President Obama was president for God's eternal glory and his purposes? If you can't reconcile that, I don't know what you're going to reconcile with. We are not given to these sort of measurements that the world gives us. Friends, don't turn on the 700 Club and listen to that garbage that, for example, and I mean this in all seriousness, that, you know, a, a massive, uh, you know, earthquake in Haiti is judgment among the people. That is a lie. That is false teaching. Don't listen to that stuff. Friends, Jesus says these are not the, the measuring rod of the times. He says, he says, do not be an alarmist. So how do we prepare ourselves? Well, because here's the reality. If you've lived more than a day, you recognize that this world is broken. And friend, if you come here this morning as a non-Christian and you think this world is all roses, you're confused. Good luck. And if you're a Christian and you think that, you are, you're, you're worse than blind. This world is severely broken. It is broken by our sin. It's not a problem out there. It's a problem in here. And so we must cultivate in our hearts. Friends, it's so funny, this sort of false news thing that you've been hearing about, you know, all this, you know, false news stuff. Oh, friends, how often do we do that as Christians? We just give ourselves into false news. We need to cultivate among us a biblical worldview. As Christians, we need to have sort of biblical glasses we put on, Christian worldview glasses that we put on to look at the events of the world. How do we see those things? How do we allow the Bible to inform those things? Just one thing that you could do is listen to godly men about these things. So one, for example, is Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville. He has a daily uh, audio podcast that he does called The Daily Briefing. You can just get online and Google that. Uh, Albert Moeller, just go albertmoeller.com. You listen to those. He had like 15 minutes. They'll take you a few minutes every day. Listen to that. What he does, he takes like the big events and he, he puts a Christian worldview on it. How should we as Christians think about that? Friend, that's uh, that would be so helpful for you if you like if you're discouraged, if you're alarmed by some of the events around us, as I said earlier, don't think passively about events. Don't just think passively about them. Don't allow them to unnerve you, but rather trust that God is moving human history towards his ends, his divine ends. Let's move quickly to number three, the warning about persecution. Verses 9 through 10. Jesus says, be on your guard. In fact, all throughout this passage, Jesus has exhorted his disciples to be on your guard. That watchfulness and guardedness is the theme that sort of connects all of these verses together. That God's people are sort of watchful in their life. That we are to watchful. And, and one of the things I just want to see is that guard yourself because temptation is about God. Excuse me. Because persecution is about God's glory, not your own. I want you to notice something that he says all throughout this passage. 
For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. You see that? For my sake. And then later on in the passage, in verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Persecution is for the name, in the name of Jesus is what he's thinking about here. Friends, we will be persecuted. We will be. This is what Jesus is saying. Be on your guard. Protect yourself. Put on your armor. Understand that you are facing a battle. That, that, that you, this world is not your own. There's that phrase right there you just kind of think about this afternoon. Hated by all. Have you experienced that in your life? The sort of hate that Jesus prophesies will happen to his followers? Friends, as Christians, we will, we will face many days of persecution. I know it's hard. Like what's hard when we talk about persecution is that we live in a world, we live in a country that we're relatively free in. You know, short of a few bathroom bills and, um, you know, other things about abortion and whatnot. You know, uh, you know, we're relatively free to say what we want and do what we want. You know, this morning I'm of your preaching, not worried that a group of militia are going to come in and take me to prison because I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's not true in, in, in many parts of this world. So as Christians, one of the things we can do is sort of trust God's purposes in that and pray for the persecuted. Give yourself to pray for those who are persecuted. But I want you to know something. What Jesus is saying here is be on your guard. Don't be so focused on the clock. But do your job. Notice what he crouches in the midst of this passage in verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is what he says. Is, Listen, you have a mission. Don't be worried about these other things. You have a mission, you go and you complete that mission. Don't be worried about, uh, you know, when, when's, the, when, when's Jesus coming? When's he coming? Let's see. You know, checking the clock. When do I get off work today? No, he says, no, don't focus on the clock, but rather focus on the job. Do your job well. Do your job well. Preach the gospel. Be about evangelizing the nations. We're moving quickly. Verse number four, warn, fourth warning, hated by all. He says, do not be anxious. And what he offers here in this passage is the gift of the Spirit, right? Savoring the Spirit. He says, when, don't be anxious when you're delivered over and, and you don't know what to say. Imagine this would be very fretful. I mean, just imagine right now if someone came in here and drug you off and you had to stand before a judge and they questioned you about your Christian faith, about Jesus, about why you're not saying Caesar is Lord. Why? Tell me why you have such a problem doing that. And you have to stand before this intimidating judge or governor or king or president, and he's going to question you. I would be freaked out. I would be scared. But Jesus promises the Spirit of God will be with you. He reminds us throughout, and, and in John 14, just that famous uh, sort of exhortation that Jesus says, listen, don't be afraid, the helper will come. I, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will send my spirit. So we trust the Lord's provision. Now, this doesn't mean that we're lazy and unprepared. It doesn't mean we just kind of sit around and just like, hey, you know, when these opportunities come, I'll, I'll think about it then. No, we, we still, we, we persecute these things. Friends, we pray. We pray for men to be around our leaders, godly men that would give godly counsel, like what we see here, like Paul before Pilate, or excuse me, Paul before the governors of Rome. 
and ultimately before Augustus. Friends, we want to see that ultimately we suffer for the sake of Christ. And the call in this passage is to endure to the end. Saving faith is enduring faith. And the exhortation in this passage is to endure. Endure. Don't become chicken little and run around like an alarmist. The sky is falling. But trust that God's sovereign purposes are being worked out. Know that persecution will come. That sometimes you will lose family, friends, loved ones, maybe even your job for the sake of Christ. Count that as a good day. God forbid. We draw comfort from these promises. I just want to conclude with these helpful thoughts from J.C. Ryle. Let us gather comfort from these comfortable promises. For all true-hearted servants of Christ, persecuted, vexed, and mocked as they are now, they shall find at length they are on the victorious side. Beset, perplexed, tired as they sometimes are, they shall never find themselves entirely forsaken. Though cast down, they shall not be destroyed. Let them possess their souls in patience. The end of all that they see going on around them is certain, fixed, and sure. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of their God and of his Christ. And when the scoffers and ungodly who so often insult them are put to shame, believers shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. What a great reminder that is for us all. Let's pray. much we could think about we hold on to the promises of God your promises in our life that your son will return that you will free us from these wretched bodies that you will give us victory over sin Father we are often weak oh it would be so easy just to give up and sit down perhaps even turn away to go back our old way. And Father, I pray today for that believer that may want to just quit today. Maybe he's on the urge, verge of just giving up on you, your promises. And I pray that your spirit would encourage them and give them the faith to endure. Father, I pray for the unbeliever here today who has not placed faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would your spirit regenerate their souls. God, I pray that as your people, we would endure to the end for your glory and our joy we pray. It's in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we conclude our time together today, we want to sing this final hymn. A reminder, uh, as we have our gaze, our eyes upon that eternal home, as we hear the harps harp, as we hear them, they call us home. So let's stand and sing together, Hark, I Hear the Harps Eternal. Mm-hmm.